0: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures
1: right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts.
0: Welcome to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. the Trump-leaning conservative crowd at last week's conservative political action conference were not particularly warm toward former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley. But Haley seemed unruffled. Undoubtedly, she knows the pathway to the presidency is likely to be a challenging one for her. After all, She's the first Asian American woman to ever run for the Republican nomination for president.
1: I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. And my parents reminded me and my siblings every day how blessed we were to live in America.
0: Haley's parents immigrated from India and raised her in the Sikh faith. She's just one of a handful of rising stars in the Republican party of Asian heritage including two of the first ever Korean American women elected to Congress, California representatives Michelle Steele and Young Kim. Here's Representative Kim speaking to CNN. Asian Americans are Americans. As an
1: Asian American and a member of Congress, I feel a duty to speak out.
0: And these are conservatives who often foreground their Asian American identity as an inextricable part of their conservative identity
1: take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country.
0: Yet many Asian American conservatives face an assumption about their authenticity that is sometimes unspoken, but one that former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal once addressed head on. Maybe I'm not what they think a conservative should look like.
1: We really wanted to challenge what has become a very prevalent assumption that when people of color support conservative causes or identify as conservative, that somehow it's because they're either dupes who are trying to be white or perhaps they're sellouts or opportunists who want to claim the benefits of whiteness. My name is Jane Hong and I'm an associate professor of history at Occidental College.
0: Empirically, Asian American voters are, as a whole, more likely to vote for Democratic candidates than for Republicans. But within the collective identity of Asian-American are folks with heritages from dozens of countries. Countries with complicated histories and relationships with one another. And with the U.S. And they don't all vote the same way.
2: Any sort of articulation that we have about an Asian American political history or a political science needs to be transnational, needs to be international, needs to really wrestle with the relationships that the United States might have with places, for example, in colonial spaces like the Philippines, like Vietnam, like the Koreas, like China, and like Japan. My name is Adrian DeLeon. I'm an assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California.
0: Jane Hong and Adrian DeLeon are co editors of a current special issue of UCLA's Amerasia Journal. It's a publication dedicated to research in Asian American and Pacific Islander studies. They've devoted this issue, as its title goes, to conservativisms and fascisms in Asian America. And for both Jane and Adrian, this matter isn't just academic, it's part of their lived experiences as Asian Americans.
1: One of the memories that sticks out to me is just driving to my grandmother's funeral in 2017 and my uncle, who's a pastor, was sitting in the front seat and um, the hearse driver, this is in Queens, New York, (laughs) the hearse driver was an Italian-American guy from Queens. um, And they were basically both talking about how Donald Trump's been incredibly misunderstood and why he's so good for the United States, so good for the country. These are two very different men coming from two very different backgrounds. Um, And for them to get to the same page, it's much more complex than a story of, you know, my uncle doesn't want to be white. I mean, (laughs) I would never describe him that way. And so, thinking about these kind of flattened explanations of why it is that so many Asian American evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and even again in 2020, like I knew these weren't fully accurate.
0: Jane's work explores the rising influence of Asian American evangelicals, revealing that white evangelicals don't have a monopoly on Christian nationalism. Indeed, recent data from the Public Religion Research Institute show that a majority of Asian American Protestants. Are supporters or sympathizers too. And Adrian points out that this is not a phenomenon of Asian American communities adopting a foreign ideology, but the organic development of Christian nationalist and conservative tendencies rooted in transnational history.
2: I grew up in a very fundamentalist, right-wing Filipino Catholic community on the east side of Toronto. And for folks who are not familiar with the broader histories of the Philippines, it's roughly 90 to 95% Catholic. And that stems all the way back from the earliest moments of Spanish colonization on the islands. One of the reasons why the Catholic Church today is such an influential force in in, in the making of transnational Filipino communities is that we often think of the people power revolution in the 1986 though the one that overthrew the marcos the first marcos regime as left-wing, revolutionary, and anti-colonial, and certainly had a possibility to do that. But what ended up coming in instead was a Christian nationalist presidency. And indeed, the Catholic Church came in and stepped up its influence. It took over you know, a lot of the political life of the islands. It certainly took up a lot of the political life of the diaspora, especially a diaspora like my family. And in Canada, unlike the United States context where there is a long and rich tradition of Asian American organizing, in the Canadian context, all we had was a church. And so, so the moment that really haunts me and I think really drives not just a lot of my scholarly work, but the way that I sort of politically position my scholarly work as sort of atonement <laughs> for that history and that personal and family history is one day I was in graduate school at the University of Toronto and I was crossing the street and there are always these activists across the um, the sort of Catholic youth center, the ones holding up um, the, the doctored photos of fetuses and You know, advocating against abortion and handing out pamphlets, you know, yelling at counter protesters and the like. And I usually just ignored them until one day I heard, oh, hi, Adrian. And it was an old friend of mine. It was an old friend of mine from my old religious youth group who then told me how much, you know, my work with the youth group. And this is something that I was raised in as a teenager and as a child really inspired him to become an activist. And that haunts me till today, because that is certainly not my particular politics. And yet, you know, when I came to the United States to be a professor of Asian American studies, we often sweep these narratives under the rug and in a lot of ways actually really dwelling on these painful histories and these political alignments are sort of really critical for, for, I think, political and social change rather than just, you know, trying to advance a particular narrative about the given progressivism of the Asian American community and Asian American communities
0: Jane and Adrian spoke with me about their scholarship on Asian American conservatism.
1: For many ordinary Asian Americans, we really wanted to emphasize the indigenous factors that led people to embrace conservative causes migration experiences, their histories in Asia, and the politics of migrant communities themselves that are specific to Asian Americans. And so I think, you know, by by doing that, we wanted in many ways to reclaim, I don't know if the word is agency, but to to reclaim the fullness um, of Asian American conservatives and, and kind of their humanity. This is not a rehabilitation project, but it's more <laughs> an attempt um, to really take seriously the fact that people are making choices.
0: Adrian, I want to let you in on this idea that somehow there are a set of ideologies that, um, and particularly kind of on the the right of the spectrum, conservatism, typically even to fascism, that somehow belongs to white folks in America. And so, if marginalized communities have their own versions of it, that that is somehow an inauthentic political expression.
2: I want to hang on to a word that you said, which is inauthentic. And I think that's a really great way to describe some of the political impetus as to why we wanted to put this issue together specifically around Asian American right wing, right of center or far right politics. And there's a couple of things going on. Number one, especially in the North American, the United States context, we understand the political spectrum in ways that map neatly and sort of take for granted the American electoral system and american political ideologies and yet as transnational communities asian americans too sort of have to juggle not just the way that they interact with american politics but also the way that that may or may not in surprising ways refract the ways that they came to the united states with the political understandings that they might have had from quote unquote something like their home country
0: this language of wrestling with transnationalisms, is that simply reducing Asian American politics across its broadest and most complex spectrum to basically an immigrant story, right? Or is there there's something that is also perhaps uniquely developing as a result of experience within uh, the U.S. itself?
2: I think it's a bit of both. It's also, I think, the way that, for example, in the Filipino context, there are ways that for example, in Filipino-American communities, particular groups or particular voters or the electorate might lean towards the center or even center left, but also have particular political sensibilities in the Philippines that, much, that might align much more with the right in the Philippines, right? So, for example, this is really sort of reflective on the ways that Filipino communities wrestle with the legacy of the Ferdinand Marcos regime. Not just historical memory about the Marcos regime and its atrocities and its plunder has sort of been erased across generations. But on the other hand, too, how the so-called return of the Marcoses with the election in 2022 was not just a project that took place in the Philippines, but really one that was really attentive to the diaspora. The way the political information and misinformation, for example, that circulates and sort of ferments, you know, political, really surprising political alignments across the Pacific.
0: Adrian, as I listen to you talk about a transnational, uh, diasporic Filipino set of experiences that include you as a Canadian, Um, and Jane, you know you're reflecting on a set of multi generational experiences from uh, Korean American family. I just also guess have to ask about even the notion of Asian American as um a political category right if there's a way that we are
1: sort of imposing a sameness where perhaps there is much more diversity There's so much good work by historians, immigration historians, who basically look at how the term initially was Asiatic. Um, The racial term, the category was created by immigration restrictions or exclusion laws during World War I, 1920s. Um, and, And these laws, these Asian exclusion laws, weren't overturned until really the 1960s, the 1965 Immigration Act. And so it was that category that Congress created in 1917, the Asiatic Barred Zone. That's the category that really lumped East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia and all these places where, you know, people themselves might not have necessarily identified with one another. Um, Sick farmers in California might not have seen themselves as having much in common with um, Chinese migrants on the ground. Even from within that that category, that legally constructed category of exclusion, there were at least the seeds of solidarity and collective action were planted. And so that's, I think, where the Asian American movement of the late 1960s, to be fair, that that movement was primarily led by Japanese and Chinese Americans, some Filipino Americans, because they were the primary demographics who were here at the time. And so when folks were marching for ethnic studies at San Francisco State and Berkeley, it was a lot of those folks, U.S. born, um, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino Americans, and some others as well alongside. I mean, that is the movement that really created and gave birth to Asian American studies. So I think this whole field is indebted to the work of radical activists. But today, when I think about people like, like Nikki Haley, even when I think about Kamala Harris, right, right? Um, Thinking about kind of South Asians, Indian Americans, how they fit and don't fit, right? In many ways they fit uneasily within this category of Asian America. And when you zoom out further to AAPI, when you lump Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders together, you have an entirely different set of questions about like, do these categories even fit? So what do the
0: careers of politicians like Nikki Haley mean for the future of Asian American conservatism? That's next on The Takeaway.
2: Violent police raids on student protest encampments play out against the backdrop of a crucial presidential election.
0: Could this be 1968 all over again? If every election
2: is just like 1968, then no election is like 1968. Maybe this election is like 2024. Plus, what Israelis are seeing on TV on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. I've been talking with Professors Jane Hong and Adrian DeLeon. They're the co-editors of the new issue of UCLA's Amerasia Journal, called Conservatism and Fascisms in Asian America. They've taken us through some of the complex origins of political conservatism in Asian American communities. But I also wanted to think about some of the folks who represent the future of Asian American conservatism like former South Carolina governor and current Republican presidential candidate, Nikki Haley.
1: One thing that I've been struck by, and I've been reading a lot about Nikki Haley's candidacy, I mean, there's a way that people can use the child of immigrants narrative. I mean, there are so many ways you can actually use that narrative. Um, And it's not limited to Asian Americans, but that is a very common trope for Asian Americans on all sides of the political spectrum across history, because that kind of child of immigrants narrative it's compelling and it's also really palatable um, for folks on the right. I've been really struck by just how different candidates use that narrative over time. But I think that they really do, you know, Indian Americans, South Asian Americans have a distinct history in the United States that, again, has commonalities and overlaps with the lives of people like Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, and others. There's also a different kind of religious calculus with Indian Americans. I saw a great piece by Kyati Joshi in the Religion News Service about kind of how Nikki Haley came to Christianity later, that was a different kind of journey. Versus, you know, people like Michelle Park Steele and Young Kim, I mean, they're evangelical Christian, at least one of them claims to have become Christian in Korea. Mm. And Korea was the site of so much US evangelical missionary project. I mean, there were so many, the Billy Graham crusade was on fire out there, Campus Crusade for Christ Korea. So, I mean, I think the question of how these racial histories kind of intersect with um, histories of Christianity and religious histories, is another really interesting question that really play out when we think about these different candidates, these different conservatives who all identify as Asian-American.
0: What I'd love to do is um, maybe walk through just uh, not only Nikki Haley, but a few other representatives and have you all um, kind of think through what does it mean, um, for example, to think about a Nikki Haley or a a former governor um, Bobby Jindal or some other folks sort of in light of both the insights of your own work and some of the insights of the work that emerge in this new journal.
2: The Bobby Jindal sort of case is is one that's sticking sort of very close to home, because I think it, you know, both in the Bobby Jindal and the Nikki Haley case, right? Like there's, there there is, nonetheless, there is a narrative about the desire to be proximate to whiteness. And yet, Bobby Jindal in particular is a particularly haunting one. I think about that portrait all the time. I think about the, you know, really haunting image around the fact that it reminds me of longer histories of the racial ambiguity of Indian Americans in the United States, right? So there was um there was the Sing Tin case, I believe, in the 1920s, where Indians Indian migrants needed to be you know sort of ascertained are they are they white by virtue of you know historical Aryanness or are they Asiatic, right? To sort of Jane's point, mm-hmm. and there was the argument, one of the arguments made in court was was for whiteness, and of course that sort of lost out. I think. The I think the Bobby Jindal sort of case like does 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 a little bit of different political work, mm-hmm. which on one hand, you know, for someone wanting to make a, gu- a gubernatorial run or a presidential run, which is despite diversity to in politics, in the United States, you can't have somebody that looks anything that deviates from whiteness, which is ironic because we've just had a black president before Trump.
0: Jane, you've also written about um, Young Kim and about um, Michelle Steele. Can you tell us a little bit about them and what their stories tell us about Asian American conservatism?
1: These are two Korean American Congresswomen, both Republican, elected from Orange County, California in the last few years, I think there are folks who might be tempted to argue that their stories are specifically Orange County, California histories. Um, Orange County, California, you know, it has a really high um, Asian American population. They actually make up a large part of the the electorate. Um, In Orange County, it's been the subject of so many history books um, because it it really was in many places the birthplace of a particular kind of conservatism in the 60s and 70s and after. But Orange County was like 93 percent white in the 1960s. But then the 1970s onward with post-65 Asian migration and with the arrival of Southeast Asian refugees after 75 coming from across Southeast Asia, but particularly Vietnam. I mean, the demographics of that entire place um, have been dramatically changed. And so it was a Republican bastion for a really long time. But then um, the question was, could you flip it um, in 2018 right? 2020? And so a lot of Orange County has flipped blue. Um, but yeah, young Kim and Michelle Kim and Michelle Clark Steele, they really were seen as these potential beacons <laughs> toward a future of kind of non-white conservatism. The thing about them is they're both immigrants, Korean immigrants. They both have really interesting immigrant stories. Young Kim has been active in local politics for decades. My mother-in-law, who's Korean American, she remembers Young Kim like doing things in the Koreatown community, like in the 90s. I mean, so Young Kim hasn't just she didn't just materialize in 2018. Um, She's had a long kind of history working among Korean American and Asian American communities. Michelle Park Steele has had a different kind of path. She is married to Sean Steele. He used to be the head of the California Republican Party. And so I think she's always had a kind of direct connection. Both women style themselves as evangelical. They were some of the only uh, California Congress people to welcome and meet Donald Trump at the airport when he visited a few years ago during his uh, presidency. I mean, their elections are part of a much broader strategy by the Republican Party, which has now begun opening voter centers in places like Orange County, but also in Texas, in Georgia. And these voter centers are specifically meant to target Asian, American, Latine, and other um, communities of color. Because that's, you know, I think people know this, Republican Party knows this from the postmortem report in 2013, like the future, right? They need to have, they need to court these diverse communities of color, I think in some ways, Young Kim, Michelle Park Steele, and other candidates of color who have actually won using these kind of diversity strategies on the Republican side, in some ways they are now becoming kind of the blueprint or playbook for how the Republican party might try to do things going forward.
0: Jane Hong is Associate Professor of History at Occidental College. And Adrian DeLeon is an Assistant Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Jane and Adrienne, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: It's a real pleasure. Thank you.